Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Delaware State Capitol, a town known more for Dover Air Force Base, the Dover 500 racetrack, and traffic jams leading to the Delaware beaches, is a setting where higher education history is about to be made. On May 15th, a day that should have been filled with exuberance for seniors celebrating their big moment graduating from Wesley College in Dover, was instead bittersweet. All knew it, it would be the last time any graduate would walk across the stage as a Wesley Wolverine. Next year, the rising seniors will leave as Delaware State Hornets. The two colleges are located less than a mile apart and will become one on July 1st. Delaware State University, a 130-year-old land-grant historically black college and university, and proud owner of a successful Division I athletics program, is acquiring its neighbor to the east, Wesley College, a 148-year-old minority-serving institution with a robust Division III athletics program. My guest today is Dr. Scott Gines, Vice President and Director of Athletics at Delaware State University. Scott and I talk about the acquisition of one college by another and what that looks like in real life. We also talk about his experience working at two minority-serving institutions as a white man and his history of embracing diversity and equity at each. Well, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Karen. Good afternoon. Glad to have you. And um, you are in a very unique situation on so many levels, but let's just start about this very first current situation. You are an outgoing or retiring vice president and athletic director at Delaware State University, which is an HBCU in Division One but an HBCU in Division I who has just acquired another university, a Division III school, Wesley College. Can you tell us about how that came about? Well, I can, and I'll attempt to do it succinctly. One, we're in the process of acquisition, and that process um, dates for nearly a year. And the uh, lion's share of that work is really, as you might gather, done in the academic village. Um, and it hinges very heavily uh, upon accreditation standards or the missions for why we exist in higher education. Wesley College is actually only a little over a mile away from Delaware State University's campus. Um, we're obviously in a small state of three counties and Dover is the capital city. Wesley College is right in the heart of the capital district, whether it's legislative Legislative Hall, uh, the Governor's Mansion, et cetera. Beautiful campus, beautiful opportunity. And they've been around for about 60 years as a four-year institution, but much longer um, in, in the different types of institutions that they continue to grow and expand from. Very good Division Three athletic department uh, in particular over the last 20 years, uh, a great deal of Division Three football success from that standpoint. Uniquely enough, um, uh, one, this is an acquisition as opposed to a merger. Uh, two, uh, Wesley College in Delaware State, if we were to look at our demographics, whether it's in-state, out-of-state, whether that's racially, culturally, and even to some extent programmatically, we would find a long list of similarities mm -hmm. that, that, that really share um, 
the premise and the business plan that expanding Delaware State, and I might add the only HBCU over the last seven years in our country to actually uh, demonstrate enrollment growth, to expand our presence, um, as well as our programmatic offerings. And that is how these very exciting and I believe transformative um, elements unfolded. Uh, it's, this isn't a criticism, just a factual statement. Wesley College has declined in enrollment uh, as a small private faith-based institution over the last six to seven years. And they were looking for a partner. And I think we, we, are, the, we are the perfect and best and most transformative fit to make that purchase. And, and for those of us who follow higher education, we know that this is gonna become more commonplace as schools look to leverage their strengths and create partnerships that allow them to grow. You see that with schools possibly uh, merging with medical schools and other kinds of healthcare institutions to try to leverage the growth in jobs and healthcare. One of the things that I think my listeners would be interested in is I went on the, um, the website for Wesley and also for Delaware State to see what the transition would look like for athletes who maybe were currently playing at Wesley, but might want to continue their career at, at, at Dell State, but in a division one program. So how did you work those pieces out in terms of athletes moving on and maybe still playing for Delaware State? Well, as I underscored, it is an acquisition. So just really to share the fundamental fact from an NCAA bylaw, and it really is only about one sentence, that uh, one federal ID number, um, okay. and you have to be an accredited institution, uh, one federal ID number allows for one athletics department. So moving forward and uh, potentially assimilating uh, current Wesley College student athletes into uh, some or all or part uh, of our 19 programs here at Delaware State, uh, that's really our two compliance directors coming together okay. on what's really, uh, for lack of a better term, a standardized checklist in terms of the processes. The subjective part is head coach selecting um, that young person in that transfer, whether that selection uh, would be as a preferred walk-on, um, how that, how that uh, transpires is uh, really a compliance function. And then, you know, uh, I began my career um, in Division I as, as a pure walk-on, if you will, um, and that worked out. I'm grateful that it did, and I imagine there will be several that will do that. Um, the bigger part of it uh, from an enrollment management standpoint has really been the overarching embrace and as well as bringing in to our communication systems, all of Wesley students, because as you can imagine now and a little bit prior to now, pre-registration for fall courses and how those things unfold. Not, not specifically from an athletic standpoint, but uh, the satisfactory progress that comes with making your selections and making progress towards your bachelor's degree. Right, right, right. And how, how does it work in terms of, you know, coaches and administrative staff and, and that type of thing? I mean, are they automatically continued employment? Same thing with faculty. I mean, if you've got faculty, a lot of faculty who teach English, do they have to reapply for jobs as part of a new configuration? How does that work? 
Well, uh, that would take more time uh, <laughs> to probably explain than, than we have here. But that is a very real and important part of that process. Um, as you know, an institution has to be liquid uh, in terms of a business entity, even though we're nonprofits, if you will. Um, so it's going to come back to that business plan, the projected amount of enrollees one year from now, as well as the programmatic piece. Um, Wesley has very strong programs in the health sciences, and um, their campus will be a continuing hub for that um, here in the capital city uh, and, and as a part of Delaware State University. We have our strengths as well there too. And so in terms of the selections, there's a strategic and tactical element in terms of running to those strengths and running to those programs that um, really provide something for our state as a public institution. Um, that makes an impact here in the state of Delaware. Yeah, yeah. It does mean that, uh, you know, not all um, make the travel squad, if you will, um, in the process of this, uh, whether it's a business acquisition or in this case, a higher ed acquisition, there are those difficult conversations that go yeah. with that. No doubt, no doubt. I guess the last question before we shift into another um, area of, of your expertise is what happens to the traditions? Do they just go away? Do they, do they get incorporated into the new combined athletic programming or, or do you just kind of just wait and see what happens? No, I, I think the worst thing one could do is wait to see what happens because uh, I've had other experiences, not in acquisitions, but attempted mergers. And, um, you know, particularly in athletics, um, and I would say as well in terms of alumni and, and uh, development as well, those traditions, um, they're part of the heartbeat and the lifeblood of any institution. Um, We've seen it probably in our lifespans uh, when high schools merge, particularly the small towns where you've got three towns that in a different time period enjoyed great athletic success or a specific identity and now they're merged into one. There's a hurt that goes with that. There's, yeah. a, there, there's a void that goes with that. So being able to come together and honor those things, uh, they're, they're, you know, there there's some obvious ones in athletics um, your championships, your halls of fame, and bringing really two entities together yeah. um, to navigate and to partner and to shepherd that going forward. Um, because making meaning there and making sure those legacies um, survive and thrive are very, very important. Great point. Well, let, let's, let's shift gears just a little bit now. Um, you're one of the few people that I know who has worked at two consecutive minority serving institutions, one a Hispanic serving institution, and that was te uh, Texas A&M Kingsville. Right. And then currently your position at Delaware State, which is an HBCU. That's allowed you a lot of on the ground intelligence about how these schools operate. What's interesting to me is Texas A&M Kingsville was larger, but it was division two than Delaware State, which is smaller, but division one. And that brings some dynamics into what sports are really good, how, how successful your coaches are in each of those stratospheres. 
Talk to us a little bit about the, the overarching themes that you saw between one institution and another. Right, that's, uh, I think we could write a, a fascinating article or perhaps a dissertation on that. <laughs> I think one of the things to begin with is just the geography. And, um, uh, you know, if we draw a line through the state of Texas, um, we're going to be east, we're going to find essentially the nation's HBCUs. That's not to say we're not going to find some HSIs, Hispanic serving institutions. We'll find some, but uh, the majority of those are within and west of Texas. Texas is that state um, that has both of those types of minority serving institutions. When it comes to sport, I think we see some differences there. Um, you know, and we could look at high school sport in those two geographic areas, but let's look at conference um, championships within the Power Five. You've got 21 in the Big 12 and 23 and the SEC, whereas your ACC, Big 10, and Pac-12 are going to be 27, 28, So the culture of sport, um, the racial demographics of your institution, where you're located geographically, those come together um, in terms of creating an ethos. And within that ethos, you also have to have a business plan. One of the exciting things about being at a in Kingsville, um, and, and I had three different roles there, uh, two of which were in athletics, uh, but we start out with about 5,600 students, and uh, about six, seven years later, we had 93. Wow. Uh, one of the areas we grew exponentially was in our international students. And uh, I, I'm probably one of the few athletic directors you know who's actually built a uh, lighted cricket pitch. Um, <laughs> I was also you over, might be the only one. <laughs> well, that, that could be true too. But uh, I was VP of athletics and recreation, and, and we we saw an exponential growth to the tune of about 1,100 new students, particularly in engineering. Um, from different parts of India, principally, uh, coming for those particular programs. But um, both, both types of institutions have, have different reasons for meaning um, and how they were chartered. And I think uh, one of the most important uh, statements that I've really ever heard with respect to an HBCU comes from uh, our current president, Dr. Tony Allen. And uh, because some would look at uh, enrollment uh, within the, our country's 101 HBCUs today, and maybe even query and ask the question, well, wh why do you exist or what's the relevance today? And his, his response to that, I think is very powerful. Um, he'll share with people, if you didn't have us, you would have to invent us. And so in, in terms of the leadership development in terms of the cultural um, awareness and transformation uh, that is so key and critical. Uh, I was in Deep South Texas um, at a Hispanic serving institution in a part of our country that for a very long time was a part of Mexico. Mm. So uh, the percolation and the um, uh, just really the depth of embedded culture within that institution plays out differently from a historical perspective. Both have been very enriching. 
to me um, and to my family. Um, because yes, it, it not only took me out of comfort zones, um, but it exposed me to different cultures, perspectives, uh, the depths of soul and gratitude. Um, both institutions are, I mean, both institutions graduate over 50% uh, first time college graduates. And um, so, and they both fall in the category of access and opportunity. Yeah. And um, those three words are very powerful. And uh, it really, I believe our higher education will and should um, more clearly emulate and become what HSIs and HBCUs are. And I believe those minority serving institutions will continue to rise. And I believe they'll have an increasingly impactful voice, not only in our country, but uh, as it evolves in higher education. Now, building on that, I've heard this, this, um, this idea resonate a couple of times in the last few months, mostly around names, images, and likenesses with athletes. But this idea of the athlete coming to an HBCU brings wealth in his own or her own brand and name and identity and that they wanna transfer that wealth, that identity that they bring to the HBCU, to the MSI, that allows them to enrich the experience around them. And this is in direct, in my opinion, in direct contradiction to the way many athletes have thought about going to college before where they would wanna to go to a, a power five school or some other kind of school that already had tremendous wealth, however you categorize it, whether it be in a fan base or in budget dollars, that type of thing but they've realized they might do good or do better if they actually lift somebody up. And I've heard people talk about this about Howard. I've heard people talk about this about Norfolk State where they feel like, you know what, maybe the best thing I can do with my love is to lift another program up. Have you run across that? Is that something you're familiar with? Well, I've run across it uh, pr pr primarily because uh, you just mentioned two, two uh, members of our primary conference in, in Howard University and Norfolk State University. The way I view that, I think uh, there, there's, there's a um, beautiful purity to the contrast of those two perspectives. Because to me, you painted that uh, aspirational prospect um, in terms of perhaps selecting who is more club med in their amenities and perks and experiences, whether that's in terms of their current media rights, uh, their current facilities, et cetera. Or in the two instances you just shared with respect to Howard and Norfolk State, to me, that's, that's missional. That I wanna make an impact. Yeah. And I wanna make an, I, I am driven to an institution based on its mission. And I, in full disclosure, I'm a graduate, graduate of a military college. That's very missional from that standpoint, uh, an experience that's not designed for our enjoyment necessarily. Uh, we still call them adversarial types of education. But um, uh, I think the beauty of that is when you see highly rated perspective student athletes saying, I want to make a missional impact. 
And I think part of what we're losing in uh, SCOTUS and NIL is the fact that we're homogenizing the overarching missions, particularly of our public institutions. We just got done discussing really the evolution of HBCUs and HSIs. Yeah. We don't want that mission to ever dissolve or dissipate. Um, if anything, we want to lift that up higher. We're very brand conscious today to the point where that word almost becomes trite because it's so frequent. Um, but uh, the missional element of that, I think, is very paramount, at least in this man's mind and heart. Yeah, I, I just, it really struck me as also kind of a, a Gen Z kind of focus on, on, you know, how can I make a better, have, have a bigger impact, and where can I have that biggest impact? And I, I think that generation coming up through our high schools and and club teams and that type of thing is thinking about those kinds of things it's not just about putting the name of the school on the front of the chest but it's more about what kind of an impact can i have in that program that'll benefit more people and i just i just wonder if that's not a shift that's starting to happen with you know uh minorities but with minorities who are seeking out places to be to feel unique and to feel like they're, they're really driving their own goals and visions. I don't know if you've seen any athletes like that on your campus, but I can't imagine you haven't. No, I think that's very powerful. And, uh, you know, I, we mentioned uh, the gender distribution. Um, you know, it, there's even a cultural difference there. Texas A&M Kingsville, we were about 48, 46 to 48% female undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Um, not only here, but within the two Division One HBCU conferences, uh, the SWAC and the MEAC, um, your undergraduate female enrollment is going to average about 61 to 63% right. in those two conferences. Previously, I mentioned Power Five. Your Power Five, um, uh, in terms of uh, female enrollment is going to be about 51 to 54 percent. So there's about a 10 to 12 percent delta in differential between those. And uh, that has some uh, impact in terms of how you operate an athletic department in those spaces when it comes to gender equity and Title IX. Those are the decision-making eyes were to look, look through. And uh, the majority of sport law cases are going to boil down to issues of fairness or finances, and many times they coalesce. A close third is things that deal with liabilities. Yeah, and I think uh, we've seen that uh, unfortunately way too much in the last year with schools, Division One mostly dropping non-revenue sport programs to try to come into compliance with Title IX, you know that type mm -hmm. of thing. But we've also seen an interesting trend at the division three level of adding programs and particularly right. adding men's sports to try to address that gap that you talk about because the men's and women's enrollment gap has gotten so wide on some campuses, they got to find a way to balance that out. You and I were talking earlier about <clears throat> the challenges that HBCUs have and other MSIs about trying to remain compliant with, with gender equity, which means you've got to in some ways have resources 
to be able to offer comparative opportunities for both genders. What kinds of thoughts do you have on making recommendations as to how the NCAA might be able to support that? Well, one, I think some of the things we need to do in Division One, in particular is we need to reevaluate the scholarship model in terms of program by program and what are the scholarship caps. At the end of the day, that's really the only difference, pure structural difference yeah. between Division One and Two, and it's not always the case. You know, um, Division One outdoor men's track and field and Division Two that's the same amount of equivalency. So the, the delta between the differentials, um, we, haven't, we haven't even looked at that since 1991. So it's been 30 years. And we just got done discussing the changing de demographics in terms of gender within different types and levels of institutions. Um, and we need to revisit that. Secondly, the second and third largest distributions out of the NCAA annual pool, which as we're both aware comes from, uh, the majority of it comes from the men's basketball contract from March Madness. About 225 million of that comes out in two categories and it comes out in grant and aids and it comes out in sports sponsorship. If we look at the power five, um, only about one out of five are participation proportional. We're gonna find a much shorter list, about 8% of them, that are proportional in terms of scholarship mm -hmm. distribution based on their undergraduate enrollment, which is why I mentioned, we've got to look at the governance of Title IX. NCAA doesn't govern that. That's, that's a statute of our federal government. But, I don't know why we're financially rewarding that in FBS programs, particularly, I mean, 225 out of roughly a $600 million distribution is a lot of money. Yeah. So can we not reshape this with different metrics? Um, grant and aid is two thirds of what the broad-based distribution, the other third is sports sponsorship. We really haven't seen growth in women's sport programs within Division One. Yeah. So in our Supreme Court, we are deeply reflecting and deliberating on how we define amateur. But at the same time, for many years, we've been distributing really close to, I mean, nine figures of distributions that's really rewarding um, a lack of movement towards how we become compliant. We can either be test one or test three compliant. We're either proportional or we've demonstrated we've covered everything. Right, right. And um, the other element of that is I, I do believe we need to incentivize that for those who achieve one of those two tests. And also we, we've had matching grants in the NCAA for decades um, in terms of minority coaching positions and expansions in these very much needed and uh, cultural and social justice ways. I think we need to look at our minority serving conferences. Um, we need to incentivize adding more sport programs. Our current conference is 16 and the SWAC is 18. Mm -hmm. Contrast that to your Big Tens or 
Pac-12s. I'm not saying we need to have that many because as I shared geographically where you are and who you most frequently recruit from are gonna play a role. But we need to increase those opportunities. There's only three sports within the NCAA Division I on an annual basis. that typically average at or more than 25% African-American student athlete participation. And that's track and field, basketball, football. But within our minority serving conferences, we don't offer as many championships. We can be a change agent in this. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable leadership work. Um, it will, I mean, uh, it will disrupt uh, the business plans of some of the larger institutions. But at the end of the day, this was something we added to our, our, our country's, um, <laughs> really our laws, uh, 50 years ago. Yeah. And we have to ask the question, it's a non-discriminatory statute. It says, it's the only one that says it's okay to be in, uh, not in compliance with as long as you're making progress. But how much progress is enough and how long does it take? Exactly. exactly. And I believe we need to be, to take a, a forward role in that. Sorry yeah. for the long answer. Uh, that's okay. I think it's a very thoughtful answer. Um, I think that um, revisiting the role in adding diversity uh, to for our, our college-bound student-athletes, whether they're first-gen or a variety of other uh, labels that we give them these days, that we've got to rethink um, what sports we offer. Uh, you mentioned cricket, and, and I, I just you know, while some people might say that's crazy, that's not even an American sport. It's a sport that attracts a certain population of students that would feel like they could successfully coke be have as a co-curricular activity on campus. So therefore they might be enroll, enrolled, retained and graduated. Why do we limit our sport offering to a very narrow slice of the American population that mostly benefits white middle or upper middle upper income students that's what we've always done we may have to rethink this differently and see what sports do first gen students want to play what sports can we afford to 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 offer because we don't have all the resources that we once had if we ever really did have them but certainly our sports are getting more and more expensive so how can we think differently about this Oh, you're, 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 you're quite right, Karen. And, uh, you know, I, even the comment, or, or, or if we did have, you know, in the yeah. last 15 years, uh, the highest amount of Division One athletic departments that uh, made as much or more than they spent is 25 out of 345. You and I wouldn't partner in a new business venture to get into a business with that low of uh, percentage of success. But we do have to be thought leaders and uh, we do need to be courageous and confident in that. Your, your comments on cricket, I mean, I didn't pursue it as an intercollegiate sport. I mentioned that was also over uh, campus recreation and fitness. Um, how did I come by the notion? It was on my evening drive around our stadiums and fields and I constantly saw our students playing cricket on the oddest of spaces, parking lots, um, what did it eventually unfold to become? I have three 
fee referendums, one in athletics and two in recreation. The one in recreation led to a 19 acre new construction where that cricket field is a part of it, but it also led to what's probably still the nation's best beach volleyball uh, facility on any campus at any level. And um, they made me look good. That was a gender equity launch to become more proportional, but they're also, they are also the 2018 national champions. Um, it also led to a new tennis center. Um, so they helped advance athletics and, you know, Texas pays legislatively based on weighted semester credit hours. Yeah. Uh, majority of our folks playing cricket were getting graduate degrees in the engineering sciences and it paid a very high amount to our institution. Absolutely. So it, it is a complex business plan, but the answers are really to me all around us. And uh, I think sometimes the greatest mistake we make in higher ed is we try and jam a technical solution into what's really an adaptive problem. And only adaptive solutions and adaptive leadership will solve those types of problems, problems or dilemmas. And I believe a lot of the answers are around us in the NCAA. We're, we're a bit reticent to change, however. <laughs> Boy, that, that is a, a, a weighted argument to end on. But it's the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, Scott, is because you are an adaptive leader. You've adapted throughout the entire career that I've known you. And you've been able to make each place you've been at better. So uh, I really want to congratulate you on a successful athletics director career. Tell our audience what's next. What's in the, what's in the hopper for Scott Gines going forward? Well, thank you, Karen, for your kind words. And um, well, I, I, I'll share what uh, I wrote, uh, you know, because we're in a virtual environment here. As I let my entire staff know, I said I'm homeward bound for my final college time. That is Tallahassee, Florida. Um, in Tallahassee, uh, our son and his family and our four granddaughters live. And we have a special needs adult daughter, Kelly, who now resides there as well. In terms of uh, what I busy myself with, what new mission um, I embrace, uh, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm not quite sure. One of the things I, I share with my wife, Ginger, and, and you and I share this, you and I were both very young head coaches. <laughs> And uh, I was 25. You were a national champion early in your career. Um, and from there, you know, I'm a multi-time Division I head coach and five-time AD, twice vice president. Um, sometimes those rebuilding jobs can wear us out a little bit where, <laughs> where the buck stops there. I would share, though, I don't think we would, uh, the Austin case would exist based on the salaries you and I probably uh, received in our first head coaching jobs. Mine was 13-7, so. <laughs> Mine was 12, and I was a head coach at two sports. <laughs> there you go. So um, my times have changed, but, um, you know, it's hard to believe that uh, it's been close to 40 years. Yeah. And, um, uh, I mean, a lot of life lived, thousands of competitions, a lot of games coached, a lot of camp sessions run and uh, seven institutions, so it's been good. 
That's great. That's great. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining the podcast today, letting us think a little bit about um, how, how it could look if we were just willing be willing to adapt. That seems to be the word of the podcast. Let's be adaptive. Yes, I, I embrace that. We don't want a brotherhood of them and us or a sisterhood of them and us. <laughs> we need to adapt and embrace. That sounds great.